So, good evening. Um, I, I'm Tim O'Shea, Principal of the University, and I've got tremendous pleasure in welcoming you all to Terry Eagleton's Gifford Lecture entitled The God Debate. Uh, Professor Eagleton is a literary theorist widely regarded as one of the most influential contemporary li literary critics and theorists in the English-speaking world. A man of many parts, The Guardian, in a profile in 2002, described Professor Eagleton as a Catholic of Irish descent in Protestant England, a working-class boy whose professional life was spent at the heart of a ruling-class institution, a Marxist revolutionary who was not only tolerated but rewarded by the liberal establishment. So he obtained both his BA and, and both his MA and PhD from Trinity College, Cambridge, and while there was a student of the literary critic Raymond Williams. He is a former Thomas Wharton professor at Oxford University. He also previously held the chair of John, uh, the, chair, the John Edward Taylor Chair of English Literature at Manchester and delivered Yale University's important Terry Lectures. Professor Eagleton is a fellow of the British Academy, an honorary fellow of Jesus College Cambridge, and the author of some 50 books of literary, cultural, and political criticism. Recent books include titles such as How to Read a Poem, The Meaning of Life, and Trouble with Strangers, A Study of Ethics. The lecture this evening will be recorded. It will be available online on the University's Gifford website. I have great pleasure in handing you over to Professor Eagleton. Thanks. <clears throat> It's always delightful to be back in Edinburgh, not least to be invited to give this prestigious lecture, which I'm very honoured to be invited to do, and I'm particularly grateful to Lynn Hyams for all her scrupulous and efficient work in getting me here. Why are the most unlikely people, including me, uh, suddenly talking about God? I mean, why is it that the Almighty, just as like some aging celebrity, just, look, just as he was looking set for a, you know, a well-deserved retirement from the public stage, you know, and no doubt having surveyed the catastrophic history he'd created, bitterly regretting that he'd ever created the slightest particle of matter, not least Britney Spears, why is it that just at this supposedly post-metaphysical, post-theological point, in the evolution of Western society, he's been whisked abruptly back into the limelight, besieged by paparazzi, jostled by professors, and so on. Why have the bookshops suddenly started to sprout sections labelled atheism? Yes. Why is it that um, Richard Dawkins and myself have been asked to contribute front-page articles on the so-called God debate to what? No, not the Church Times, not even the Guardian, but the Wall Street Journal, circulation 20 million. I've informed the editor I'd be delighted to do this as long as my last sentence can be, the Wall Street Journal would never have given Jesus a column. Why is the world suddenly thronged with atheists who are as obsessed with religion as Puritans are with sex? Um, this is getting to be true, I mean the being obsessed with religion thing, even uh, even in England, where religion is in general a rather moderate, discreet, slightly shamefaced affair, and you know, where people are likely to believe that when religion starts interfering with your everyday life, then it's time to give it up. 
In that sense, it resembles alcohol, I suppose. One can't imagine the Queen's chaplain inquiring whether one's been washed in the blood of the lamb. The English take things much more moderately than that, much more temperately. If they ever get round to driving on the right, they will do so gradually. Though one must, I think, linger a little over the word atheist there. Um, in order to reject religious faith, an atheist, I suppose, must first grasp something of what it entails, what he or she is rejecting, rather as one can't argue about the value of synecdoche if one believes it's a small town in upper New York State. It's deeply doubtful, however, it seems to me anyway, that Ditchkins, as I've irreverently taken the liberty of dubbing Dawkins and Christopher Hitchens, have any such grasp at all, and therefore logically questionable, I think, whether they can be called atheists in the first place. More or less to a man and a woman, every single uh, current champion of the anti-religious case subscribes to what I've called, in a remarkably cheap and extraordinarily attractive book called Reason, Faith and Revolution, on sale outside the door, what I've called the Yeti view of faith. Um, they imagine uh, that the question, do you believe in God, is rather like the question, do you believe in the Yeti? or the Loch Ness Monster, or alien abductions. Speaking of those, incidentally, I should mention that my wife and two of my five children, who are Americans, belong to that much-hounded and reviled and persecuted group, minority of their fellow countrymen, those who haven't been abducted by aliens. It's extraordinarily hard to survive these days in that persecutory climate. Belief in God, of course, has precious little to do with subscribing to the proposition that there exists somewhere a supreme being, as I hope any tenderfoot theology student might advise Ditchkins. The grammar of I believe in God is only superficially akin to I believe in Bigfoot or I believe that at least some goblins are gay. The devils are said to believe in God's existence, but they don't, of course, believe in him. Abraham had faith in God, but he lived in a culture which could scarcely have imagined that he didn't exist. For the so-called New Testament, um, faith is the kind of commitment, I suppose, manifested by a tortured criminal at the end of his tether-tether, a political criminal at that, uh, foundering in atrocious pain and a sense of utter abandonment, who nevertheless, mysteriously, perhaps mysteriously to himself, remains faithful to the power of a transformative love. The stark signifier of faith, surely, for Christianity is the mutilated and tortured body of one who was homeless and propertyless, denounced the rich and powerful, was remarkably laid back about sex, appeared deeply hostile to the family, held that the losers and deadbeats would inherit the earth, spoke up for love and justice, and was done to death by the state for his pains. It's no wonder, perhaps, in the light of all this, that the figure of Jesus isn't exactly persona in Richard Dawkins's North Oxford, or in the more fashionable Washington bars. When Richard Dawkins announced excitedly recently on a television program that evolution, he said, had proved that our ancestors were winners, his statement was far more unchristian, 
in my view, than his reflection on the origins of the universe. No one who, like Dawkins, can write with breathtaking smugness, oozing complacency at every turn of phrase, that, I quote, most people in the 20th century are morally way ahead of our counterparts in the Middle Ages, or in the time of Abraham, or even in the 1920s, Nobody who can pen that absurd phrase could possibly have the depth of tragic, unflinching moral realism that Christian faith appears to demand. Uh, for the good professor, it would seem everyone is just getting nicer and nicer. One appreciates, by contrast with that, just how disruptively radical the doctrine of original sin is or can be. Dawkins just doesn't believe that things are all that bad, and no doubt in North Oxford they're not. This is also why he doesn't believe in the need for radical political change. His self-satisfied enlightenment doctrine of progress, I mean progress with a very thumping Herbert Spencer-like capital P, not just the kind of progress we all believe in, right, um, is in this sense anti-progressive. Christopher Hitchens is equally ensnared in this primitive, uh, credulous superstition of progress with a very large capital letter, writing as he does that, I quote, we can look forward to the evolution of our poor brains and to stupendous advances in medicine and life extension. It's not often you find Hitchens speaking like Michael Jackson, whose hope that he would live forever uh, proved, as we know, to have been you know, a touch unrealistic. Um, eternal life surely is a matter of embracing your mortality, not bypassing it. Ditchkins is just as theologically illiterate about the doctrine of creation, about which he's rather perhaps too concerned. Uh, he seems to imagine that it has something to do with how the world got off the ground. I don't know why he thinks that, that the Christian doctrine of creation or the Judeo-Christian doctrine has something to do with how the world originated. And he thinks that science, not understandably, he thinks that science can offer a vastly more plausible explanation of that than can the book of Genesis. But the doctrine of creation is not, of course, about this at all. Uh, the New Testament, for example, has almost nothing to say about God as celestial manufacturer. Theologians are not in competition with astrophysicists any more than sculptors are at war with stockbrokers. The greatest theologian who ever wrote, St. Thomas Aquinas, thought it was quite possible that the universe had no origin at all. Yet he believed devoutly in the doctrine of creation. Aquinas thought that when it came to such matters as how the universe popped into existence, one had quite properly to be an atheist. Leave the question to science. Creation concerns not, of course, the origin of the world, which is a matter for science, but the curious fact that it's there in the first place and its radical dependency, dependent for its very freedom and autonomy in a striking paradox, on a God who brought it about just for the fun of it, or to use a more theological term, just for the hell of it. The doctrine of creation thus, thus means that it precisely isn't an explanation for the world, that God created it out of his own eternal gratuitous self-delight, conjuring it up simply for the hell of it out of the unfathomable abyss of his love, and thus acting a lot more like an artist than a manufacturer. 
The world is the original act gratuit, a question of grace and gift, which like God himself, this surely is the doctrine of creation, has no ground or purpose or end or raison d'etre other than those it bears within itself. The cosmos is a gloriously pointless work of art, not an instrumental or utilitarian product, and the doctrine of creation, I think, is trying to get at this remarkable fact. Ditchkins, by contrast, seems to imagine that Christian faith is meant to be an explanation of the world, which is rather like supposing that Moby Dick is meant to be a report on the whaling industry. It's doubtful then, in my view, whether one can even award the title of atheist to such a botched understanding of what it is one is rejecting, any more than one would say describe Brad Pitt as an anti-philosopher. I mean, to be an anti-philosopher like Kierkegaard, Nietzsche, Adorno, Freud, Wittgenstein, Derrida, you have to reject the orthodox political philosophical project of your time for philosophically interesting reasons, um, a category into which I think Mr. Pitt fails to fall. Even so, we're left with the question of why God has staged his abrupt and dramatic re-entry onto the, the public stage right now. Um, why, at this you know, confidently, as it were, post-metaphysical point does that happen? And I think that one might do worse than answer in two words, or rather <clears throat> in two numbers, 9-11. I mean, of course, the second 9-11, not the first. I mean the more recent 9-11. I'm not talking about, you know, the 11th of September 1971, exactly 30 years before the destruction of the World Trade Center, when the United States violently overthrew the democratically elected government of Salvador Allende of Chile and installed in its place an odious puppet dictatorship that went on to murder far more people than disappeared and were killed in the World Trade Center. The emergence of God talk again in our time has in my view much to do with the destruction of that building, even though some of it, as with, say, Richard Dawkins, certainly predates that, but it's intensified, it's quickened after that date. And I want just to ask why. It's only really since then that writers like Christopher Hitchens have begun to ramble on dispeptically about the virgin birth, you know, in Vanity Fair. Um, I should perhaps add here on a personal note that many years ago, uh, Chris Hitchens, as he then was, he was a lowly Chris in these days and not, uh, not a Christopher. He and I were comrades uh, and activists together within a far-left organisation in Oxford, but he has matured. I was grown up. I was about to say sobered up, but that might be stretching it a bit far. Settled in Washington, made his peace with the Pentagon and discarded his infantile leftist illusions, whereas... I've remained, as you see, stuck in the same old groove, unable to accept that things have changed, clinging to my outmoded beliefs like a toddler to its blanket. Even so, Hitchens tells us rather um, um, wistfully in his book, God is Not Great, that he feels no less radical than he did then, a view share of him shared by about as many people as believe that Kate Winslet is the Antichrist. It's a very solemn audience. Um, the fall of the World Trade Center happened not 
long after some leading Western ideologues in the wake of the end of the Cold War had declared that history itself, history with a large H, was now at an end, the end of history debate. Uh, in the sense that the various grand narratives which had characterized modernity, progress, reason, science, enlightenment, classical liberalism, Marxism, and the like, were now definitively over. What remained was a pragmatic, post-ideological, distinctively post-metaphysical form of late capitalism, which was now the only game in town, hence the phrase, the end of history. But the intellectual triumphalism uh, which could promulgate this doctrine reflected an actual political triumphalism in the world, uh, not least in the West's heavy-handed and self-interested dealings with the so-called, uh, sometimes rather laughingly called, I think, underdeveloped world. And that resulted with a consummate irony in the unleashing of a new grand narrative, just as you thought you'd closed one down, that of radical Islam. The very act of trying to close down history uh, succeeded merely in prizing it open again, and that wasn't the first time that that had happened. Hegel, for example, who with disarming modesty uh, thought that history had reached its final consummation inside his own head, uh, simply managed by this argument to open it up once again through provoking the riposts of, you know, Kierkegaard, Marx, Nietzsche, Adorno, various others. Closing down history is an act within history which simply succeeds in piling more on. The result, however, was that the West now found itself eyeball to eyeball with a full-blooded metaphysical opponent for whom absolute truths and rock-solid foundations posed no problem at all, would that they did, at just the point where it was itself in danger of lapsing into an holy melange of moral relativism, political pragmatism, ontological anti-foundationalism, and philosophical skepticism, a mixture which, whatever else one might say about it, has the disability of being gravely ideologically disarming, not least at a time of acute political crisis. Islamism, so-called, is forcing the West to confront some very big questions indeed at exactly the time when in laid-back, postmodern, late capitalist style, post-metaphysical capitalist style, it's at least morally and intellectually equipped to do so when it has, as it were, engaged in an act of unilateral spiritual disarmament. There are plenty of good reasons for opposing radical Islam, not least its habit of blowing innocent civilians to bits. There are many excellent reasons for uh, detesting small clandestine groups who plot to maim and murder innocent men and women, though some people admittedly think the CIA are doing quite a good job. One of the more subtle reasons for being slammed, for being alarmed by Islamism, however, is that it lays bare not, I think, deliberately, not wittingly, just by its existence, lays bare the contradiction between the West's urgent need to believe and its chronic incapacity to do so. And this is a grave political as well as ideological problem. Capitalist civilizations can't help uh, being adverse, uh, averse to what one might dub deep 
belief, at least in their more advanced, more technocratic stages, market societies are inherently secular, relativist, and materialistic, whatever their civilians or their leaders might high-mindedly proclaim. To legitimate their operations, however, they stand in need of values and principles rather more edifying and eternal than this, which is one reason why they cling to religion, even though they increasingly don't believe in it, except in the pathologically godly United States. It's true that this then has the embarrassing effect of exposing the rift between what they claim to believe in church or around the family fireside or in political assemblies and so on, and the actual beliefs embedded in their profane, everyday marketplace behaviour. When it comes to belief, one, of course, always has to look at what people do, the beliefs incarnate and implicit in their behaviour, not at what they say. It's what one might call, what the linguists might call, the performative contradiction between what such societies say and what they what they do and how they describe to themselves what they do, or what sort of saying is implicit in their doing. It's this contradiction between the rhetoric and the reality which is so hard to handle and being confronted with a political force for whom that isn't really a problem, whatever other problems it may, it may be afflicted by, is, I think, part of this story. Nowhere is this contradiction more glaringly obvious than in the United States, which is perhaps the most materialistic nation on earth, but also one of the most deeply metaphysical, loudly metaphysical. The land of the free is awash with pious, hand-on-heart, earnestly Victorian talk about God, family, nation, freedom, and the like, in a rhetorical mode that can only cause a jaded European to stare at his shoes and wait till it stops. The more secularized, rationalized, pragmatic, and technocratic you become, in other words, the more you will need to appeal to such heady and traditional forms of self-legitimation, but the more, by the same token, you will tend to discredit them, not by what you say, but by what you do, by your actual profane, everyday behavior. You will undermine your own rhetoric, and then probably you will need some sort of discourse to move in to smooth over that contradiction. Uh, and a solution of kinds to this problem, uh, with this contradiction which is deep-seated in our kind of civilization, was provided by Nietzsche a long time ago, who more or less said, if, put it in Marxist terms, if the superstructure and the base don't go together, if what you do and what you say you do, the way you explain that to yourself, are grotesquely at odds, not least as fewer and fewer people believe religious, Rationales, then, Nietzsche says, cavalierly, throw away the superstructure. You don't need it. You think you do. You think you still need theological and metaphysical rationales for what you do, but actually you don't. And if you threw them away, if you had the courage, like the infant with its blanket, to throw those aside, don't you see you would realise that they were nothing and you were finally free? Just conjure up your values from that relative, perspectival, eternal flux, which is the will to power. Just let your values, as it were, reflect what you do. That's all right in a sort of, you know, a seminar in Tübingen or somewhere, but it's hard to do that when you're actually running a country, not least because if you do conjure up your values from what you actually do, you're in danger of ending up with all the worst values. 
your ideology needs to legitimate your behavior, give it some kind of more or less convincing rationale and not just to reflect it. The world, one might say, is currently divided between those who believe far too much and those who believe far too little. I like to think I stand in the, in the middle there somewhere. Um, late capitalist cultures are not given to an excessive belief for at least two reasons. For one thing, liberal democracies don't so much hold beliefs as believe that people should be allowed to hold beliefs. They display a certain creative indifference to what their citizens actually believe as long as they're allowed to get on with believing it and as long as they don't entertain or act upon beliefs which would prevent other people from getting on with believing whatever they believe. Such social orders then are agonistic by their very nature. Um, I, sorry, agnostic. They're also agonistic. I misread the word there in a Freudian slip. But they're also ag agonistic. I'll, I'll say agnostic for the moment. And this agnosticism, however intellectually or morally laudable, letting people get on with what they believe, is politically perilous. Because the fact in this situation is that people's beliefs are bound to collide with each other to the point where any fundamental consensus necessary for political power becomes well-nigh unachievable. Um, another reason why that consensus becomes very difficult to achieve in late capitalist societies, though this is another story, is so-called multiculturalism. If the dominant power will be interpreted in different ways by different communities, that poses a problem for deep-seated political consensus. Anyway, um, it's a characteristic, surely, of modernity and particularly of late modernity, that that consensus is increasingly hard to come by in a way that would no doubt have struck many an ancient or medieval thinker as exceedingly strange. Almost everybody agrees that roasting babies over fires is not the most civilised way to behave, but we can't agree on why we agree on that, and we probably never will. The price of freedom is potentially tragic conflict, as well as a certain perilous vulnerability in the face of a robustly absolutist or illiberal or foundationalist enemy. For another thing, capitalism is, not just, is just not the kind of life form that demands too much from its citizens by way of belief. As long as they roll out of bed, pay their taxes, refrain from assaulting police officers, they can believe more or less what they want. It's not belief that keeps the system ticking over as it's belief that keeps the Lutheran Church or the Flat Earth Society ticking over. The system, once again, is thus bound to look particularly feeble and fragile when confronted with a stoutly absolutist foe. Postmodernism, in particular, um, commits the grave error, I think, of regarding all passionate conviction as ipso facto dogmatic. It's sceptical not just of this or that faith, but in a sense of faith as such. It tries to get by on as little of the stuff as it decently can, like a recovering cocaine addict. For this brand of thought, all certainty is latently authoritarian. This is perhaps one reason why the postmodern young insert the word like 
into their speech every uh, couple of seconds to avoid the impression that they're being certain about something and thus, in their own view, distastefully authoritarian. It's um, a kind of ritual hesitation and so a sort of authenticity in an age when you can't be sure of anything and where it seems overweening to imagine or to convey that you can by not putting the word like between the other words. Yet I think there's more to the, the general situation than that because I think the deepest irony is that liberal secularism of the kind I've been describing actually helps, of course, to breed fundamentalism. These sworn antagonists are secretly sides of the same coin. Um, whether we're talking about fundamentalism, which is Texan or Taliban. Fundamentalism, like most forms of virulent aggression, has its roots not in hatred, though it may go on to hate, but in fear and anxiety and insecurity. It's the visceral creed of those who feel they've been left behind by modern society, who've been driven into spiritual fanaticism of one species or another by a shallow, purely techno technical rationality, which leaves all the deeper spiritual issues disdainfully to one side, and in doing so, leaves them open to be monopolized by the rednecks and the bigots. The other side of a two-dimensional uh, rationality is a faith-based politics. So it's then not at all surprising, I think, that old-fashioned Victorian rationalists like Dawkins and Hitchens can only think of faith as anti-rational. They're thus guilty of fideism, or they would be if they were believers, if you see what I mean. Blind faith, and for Ditchkins, astonishingly, all faith is blind. Blind faith and a purely instrumental rationality purged and cleansed of value or faith of any kind, supposedly, go together like Laurel and Hardy, opposites though, of course, they may be. Nor is this secret complicity between too much belief and too little, between liberal secularism and fundamentalism, merely an intellectual affair. Would that it were. Radical Islam is, among other things, a product of Western liberal capitalist civilization. It was the mid-20th century Western onslaught on secular, liberal leftist, and revolutionary nationalist forms of Islam in the Muslim world, which created the vacuum into which Islamism was then able to move. It was the West which was complicit in the murder of some half a million secular and leftist Muslims in Indonesia, that ousted liberal and secularist Arab leaders in the Middle East for its own imperial ends, and which deliberately nurtured radical Islam in Soviet-occupied Afghanistan. In all of these respects, the chickens are well and truly coming home to roost. Now, it seems to me extraordinary that faced with this kind of Muslim militancy, thinkers like Dawkins, Hitchens, Ian McEwan, J.C. Grayling and others should reach for the very sorts of grand narratives that advanced capitalist societies have supposedly discredited. Um, these foundational stories uh, of science, reason, progress, humanism, enlightenment, the rationalist critique uh, of religion, 
the victory of civilization over barbarism and the like. And let me emphasize that all of these imposing abstractions have, in my view, some precious kernel of truth. These fables actually belong to an earlier, more buoyant and self-assured period in the history of the modern bourgeoisie, when the middle classes were still on the make and still feeling very historically progressive and still had the world at their feet. They spun such narratives out of that sense of buoyancy and hegemony and self-assurance. Um, speaking of the rising middle classes, by the way, uh, if you open any history textbook at any period whatsoever, uh, it will always say three things. It will say, first of all, it was a period of rapid change. Secondly, it was essentially a transitional era. And thirdly, the middle classes went on rising. That's what the middle class, God, that's why God put the middle classes on earth, you know, like bread or the sun, you know, they just go on rising. Um, incongruously, however, these very assured, you know, universalist tall tales are now being revived by some anxious ideologues, besieged liberal literati in particular, in our own much more anxious, sceptical, unstable, late bourgeois epoch. And my argument has been that this is, among other things, an intellectually disreputable and indeed rather panic-stricken and I think culturally supremacist reaction to Islamist insurgency. There's a need to fight that insurgency, but this ain't the way to do it. It's a misplaced reaction in other ways too, since all the evidence suggests that Islamist militancy is scarcely motivated by religious faith at all. In fact, its advocates, its activists, probably know about as much about the Quran as Lady Gaga does about the Book of Leviticus. By and large, radical Islam is politically and not religiously motivated, as was, of course, the case with the devoutly Catholic IRA. Nothing to do with religion. It's not out of the question, in my view, um, and I've said as much in New York, that were it not for that squalid concentration camp known as the Gaza Strip, the World Trade Center might well still be standing, which is not, of course, to explain, to, to excuse that atrocity merely to help understand it. What I'm suggesting then is that much of the so-called new atheism, uh, though not all of it by any means, belongs uh, to the intellectual wing of the so-called war on terror, the Western wing of that. Scandalously, it's those liberal literati who are supposedly guardians of the very flame of tolerance and mutual understanding and diversity, Rushdie, Amos, McEwen, Hitchens and their ilk, who have been the first, um, at the first assault, as it were, to grab for a caricatured, off-the-peg, reach-me-down version of enlightenment in their panic-stricken response to the assault from the East. I speak myself as a profound admirer of enlightenment, but in its somewhat less travestied or ideologically strident versions. But it seems to me remarkable how blind these same liberal literati are to the darker underside of that precious movement of emancipation, how quick they are to denounce the crimes of radical Islam, and crimes they are, 
while passing over in silence the outrages that Western imperialism has perpetrated upon the modern world, outrages which account in part, in part, for the fact that the West is now in the firing line. The myth of progress, and again, like everybody else, I support progress with a small p. I mean, even postmodernists accept anaesthetics when they go to the dentist, I take it. This myth is resolutely linear. Uh, once there was barbarism, out of which civilization is painfully dredged and is always in peril of sliding back into it. This, in a word, is the supremacist superstition, I think, of Dawkins and his friends. The alternative is not to refuse to speak of civilization and barbarism at all, in my view, but to speak of them as synchronic rather than sequential. For every emancipation, an accompanying oppression, for every magnificent cathedral, a pit of bones. Only Marxism, to my knowledge, says at the same time, as it were, out of both sides of its mouth, that modernity, enlightened modernity, has been a tale of enthralling liberation from well-nigh intolerable oppressions and parochialisms and has been one long nightmare. And moreover, that those two stories don't just sit cheap by jowl, but are the recto and the verso of one another. That, for me, is a good reason for being a Marxist, apart from the um, pleasure of annoying certain people. There is, let me um, just touch briefly on this before I end, there's another vital reason, I think, for the resurgence of religion in our time. Well, there's a reason which is simply connected with a pervasive and fundamental sense of anxiety and sickening precariousness. And in that situation, many people... Um, uh, grab for um, uh, excesses of certainty. But there is another, perhaps more subtle reason than that, which, I, which is really another story and I can't really go into. Um, it's the fact that in our day, a powerful alternative to religion has been unmasked as not really up to the mark. And this is known as culture. From the 19th century onwards, as religious scepticism in Europe increasingly takes hold, an elusive entity known as culture was increasingly called upon to perform the kind of roles which religion had traditionally fulfilled. Like romanticism, as the man said, it's a kind of spilt religion. And this wasn't half as implausible as it might sound. Both culture and religion, after all, are concerned with corporate acts, transcendent truth, ritual practices, symbolic acts, fundamental beliefs, intuitive certainties, organic unities, and the like. Even so, however hard it tried, culture was never really capable of stepping into religion's shoes. It couldn't rival a set of beliefs which linked the most humble and trivial everyday practices of millions upon millions of people with certain absolutely fundamental, indeed transcendent, values and truths. Culture could never hold a candle to that most historically powerful of symbolic systems. In its narrower aesthetic sense, it involves too few people. Um, in its broader more promising anthropological sense, culture as value, identity, daily practice, history,
kinship, language, symbol in those senses, culture, of course, is extraordinarily important. Culture in that sense, in our time, can be defined in a word as that for which people are prepared to kill. You know, I'm not talking about being prepared to kill for Beethoven or Bach or Balzac. There may be a few seriously weird people hanging around in caves somewhere, you know, afraid to come out who are prepared to kill for that. Um, but in the other sense, in, as it were, the more anthropological rather than aesthetic sense of culture, there's no doubt that people will kill or die for that. Nationalism within that has, of course, operated as one modern displacement of religion. You know, the nation like God has no origin and end, is eternally self-identical, unified, autonomous, mysterious, unfathomable, and so on. There have been many displaced versions of religion in a secularized European age, but culture has been one of the most interesting. One of the reasons why it has definitively failed, I think, as a solution in our age, is it has shifted over from being part of the solution to being part of the problem. And that is the death knell for it. Culture, in a certain rather generous, idealist sense of the term, was thought traditionally to embody the common ground which whatever our differences of, of ethnos or gender or class would embody the deepest common humanity by which we lived. You, that in itself was too abstract. If that was to be effective, you needed a sort of palpable, tangible, portable version, distillation of those values, and that was known as literature. If the wars over literature have been so bloody, if there has been so much blood on the senior common room floors over a minority pursuit like literature, some of the blood looking suspiciously like my own, if that is the case, it's because literature or art par excellence was a supremely tangible version that you could, as it were, hold up and show to people, not least take to the colonies and show the natives what you believed, which embodied this abstraction of culture. Culture, as I say, in our time, however, has shifted over to being part of the problem rather than solution because culture is now itself the language of political dissent and conflict. Far from being some rather hopelessly idealist reconciliation of mundane conflicts. It is now the very language and articulation, the language in which so many of those, con those conflicts are now cast. In the end, of course, what was responsible for the new atheism was none of these things, you know, 9-11 or failure of culture or whatever. It was religion itself. We live in an age in which some Christians regard the glimpse of a female breast as obscene, but not the burning of children in Iraq and Afghanistan. Many of them worship a god fashioned blasphemously in their own image, a short-haired, clean-shaven, blue-blazered, gun-toting, clean-living god, champion of the rich and powerful, rather than of what St. Paul calls the shit of the earth. It is the betrayals and self-betrayals of religion, surely, which fundamentally and in the end are responsible for the new atheism. And to that extent, one might claim they've got the ditchkins they deserve. First question, please. 
There we are, there's one. Off you go. Take the microphone. Okay, um, I'm Stuart Ritchie, Psychology Department. Um, I hate to ask such a sublunary question, um, but do you actually have any evidence for the existence of God? Because it seems to me that you can talk about how nice you think the emperor's clothes are and how fancy they are and, and, and all that, but it doesn't really matter if the emperor isn't actually wearing any clothes at all. Um, and in fact, you don't seem to be, I'm not sure who your, your, your talk is aimed at, because you're not going to convince any atheists because you haven't provided any evidence for the existence of God, and you're not going to convince any religious people because you've basically told them that what they believe is not actually what, say, Christianity is. So I'm not entirely sure where your, your, your lecture is aimed. Mm. Well, I think you have to be careful to phrase that question about have you any evidence for the existence of God in a, in a non-Yeti-ish way, you know, has he been spotted flitting through the forests and so on? Um, and I think the problem, I mean, there are, there are, of course, there are non-Yeti ways of posing that question. I'm not saying they're not. My, my, my objection to sort of card-carrying rationalists like Ditchkins is that they don't seem able to pose it in any other way than the Yeti-ish way, yes? I mean, Thomas Aquinas, a whole tradition of mainstream theology, talks about natural theology, about reasoning, about God, and so on. But um, th that's not, of course, where they start from. The difference between um, a rationalist and a believer doesn't seem to me that one believes that something exists and the other doesn't. You see what I mean? Um, but I can see by your sceptical uh, expression that there is extreme difficulty in shifting the argument on from here that both sides, I mean, you know, um, full-blooded rationalists and most believers are absolutely insistent that belief in God is something like belief in Bigfoot. And until we can move it away, I don't think we'll make any progress. I mean, it would be, it's rather like, um, one might take, I don't know, one might take a certain, I have tried to take certain literary analogies to this. I mentioned, you know, looking at Moby Dick as though it was a, a report on the whaling industry. Um, uh, the danger with that is it sounds as though one's saying that belief is just a comforting set of fictions. Yes, and I don't want to say that. I think Christians have to say if it's not a fact in some sense, you know, if they say the resurrection isn't in some sense of the word a fact, then their faith is in vain. Yes, but at the same time, they would want to say, I suppose, it wasn't something you could photograph. Yeah. The relations between myth, fiction, poetry, history, fact, in a document like the Old or New Testament are, of course, exceedingly complex, and I know very little about them. I leave it to the scholars. Yeah. But I'm sure in my own mind that if faith is just a sort of poetic fiction, it's pretty worthless. And I'm also sure that you can't understand what it means unless uh, if you see it um, in the sort of white-coated laboratory way that Dawkins seems to. Uh, let me just, I'm sorry, I'm going on too long, but let me just end. I'm sure this won't convince you, but it might give you an idea of what I mean. I say in this remarkably cheap and extraordinarily attractive book of mine, which is on sale, 
at the end and the doors are closed, so you can't get out, I'm afraid, unless you... Um, I say, that, think, think of um, being in love with somebody. Uh, the, the Kierkegaard once said, the, what you have to understand is, and I never understood this for years and years, is the believer is somebody who is in love. Yeah? That's what Kierkegaard said. And that doesn't solve the question by any means, but it, gives, it shifts the terrain in a certain way. Can, can you give reasons why, for why you love somebody? Of course you can. Uh, if you can't, the word love is a mere empty sound. You know, you have to be able to give reasons. You have to be able to spell out in public, rational, contestable discourse what it is that you love about Mr. O'Shea or whoever it happens to be. Yes. Yeah. Is your love reducible to reasons? No. As Wittgenstein says, reasons have to end somewhere. And one way in which one can see that one's love is not reducible to reasons, though it involves them, is that somebody else can accept all the reasons you give and not love the person themselves. Yeah. Good. Next question, please. Professor Haldane. Very good. I knew I could rely on you, John. <laughs> Thank you very much. Sorry, John Haldane, uh, St. Andrews. Um, I suppose well, he would be a perspective... Uh, on where we've got to, let me put it that way, and, and perhaps try to fit your remarks into this. Um, you might say that in the 19th century there was a great deal of thrashing about on the part of religiously conservative people who felt deeply threatened by a whole variety of um, scholarly and other developments, so within biblical scholarship on the one hand, scientific developments and so on on the other, and went into a kind of crisis of faith. Um, and embrace certain ideas. By, uh, culture was actually part of that. The high culture movement was part of that. It seems to me that there's a sort of corresponding move on the, on the left in the 20th century, which is there's a lot of thrashing about there as well, because it, it's had taken away from it the possibility of a certain kind of prophetic, critical uh, position on society. So the religious believer of the, of the 19th century was able to invoke a kind of authority figure of God who looked down upon the people uh, and judged them as having breached covenant and unworthy and so on. And this gave us... A, and in the 20th century, the left invoked a kind of gospel of the poor as providing a, a leverage against another kind of structure that wasn't liked and so on. But although these are culturally interesting phenomena, um, they seem to me to leave the question of the truth or otherwise of religion pretty much where it was. And here, I suppose, I have some sympathy for the previous questioner, uh, in as much as um, supposing we say, well, you know, religion is a wonderful or offered something that, that for which there is no substitute, that doesn't in and of itself show that it's, it's true or, or that it has anything like a secure foundation. And putting it the other way around, I, don't, I, I have some doubts as to the extent to which one can embrace, say, Christianity without taking it very seriously, for example, in its Pauline versions. And its Pauline versions are very antipathetic, I would imagine, to many of the things that you yourself would value. So, for example, you will search both the Old and New Testaments and never find anywhere in it a doctrine of equality. There's no point in either of the Old or New Testaments that we're told that God loves all equally, for example simply no place in, in the entire Hebrew Christian Bible in which there's a doctrine of the equality of humankind. On the contrary, you get a certain set of elites and such like, and this is why 
I mean, that's originally the elite of the covenant, but it's the elite of the elect and the one part and so on. So what you get out of Christianity is something very uncomfortable, but it's not, it doesn't lend itself, it seems to me, to the, 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 the critical position of the right in the 19th century or the position of the left in the 20th century. And I just, my thought is, that if one's going to take it seriously, the question then is what is the content that one's taking seriously? If one leaves behind, as it were, the rhetorical instruments that it provides and says, okay, well, that's, that's been exceedingly interesting. What you've had to say tonight contributes much to that. But what is the content of religion that you would invite us to take seriously? Well, I, I, took, I took myself to be talking about the content of Christianity quite a bit of the time. And I'm surprised that you see it either in terms of a certain rhetoric or simply in terms, as it were, of a certain commitment to the, to the poor that interests the left. I would absolutely agree with you that there are all kinds of commitments to the poor that don't entail the truth of Christianity, and what you call the truth of Christianity can't stand or fall by that. But I didn't argue that it, that it did. Um, uh, I think Paul is one of the most magnificent of writers. He understands as the as the political left does, that, um, or to put it in Yeats's terms, nothing can be sold or whole that has not been rent. Deep, deep in Paul's theology, surely, whatever one might say about this or that doctrine of equality, is the belief in a, well, is the belief in a certain kind of tragedy. That is to say that without a certain passage of dispossession, no value can emerge. I mean, I think that there are, I mean, or to put it, when, when you talk about the truth of Christianity, well, you know, um, as my old friend and theologian Herbert McCabe used to say, what the New Testament argues, that if you, if you don't love, you're dead, and if you do, they'll kill you. I think that's profoundly true. And I think that if one's talking about the truth of Christianity, one has to talk about it in those terms. Yes. Does that strike you, or whoever, as um, utterly central to humanity and to history? It certainly does me, yes. That's how I would like to approach it. Um, uh, but that's not the same kind of truth, is it, that Dawkins and Hitchens have in mind? And that's a very important point. When you talk about the left, uh, the left's involvement in theology in the 20th century, actually one might say that now, with Gambon, with Zizek, with Badiou, with a whole number of resolutely atheist leftist thinkers who are writing fascinating books about Paul and Christianity and Judaism, I would say indeed almost that much of the most interesting theology in our time is coming from the secular atheistic left. Why is an interesting question, but um, part, part, of, part of that, not least in the work of, of uh, Alain Badiou, is the need to redefine the concept of truth. And Badiou's concept of truth as a certain kind, Badiou is a resolute atheist, as a certain kind of tenacious and unwavering commitment to a revelatory event, which is various kinds, seems to me a very useful idea for theologians to pursue. They can learn quite a bit from the left. Yes, and remember to say who you are for the people not physically present in the room. Okay. 
Okay. My name is Idris, and I edit a webzine called Pulse. My question was um, regarding these, um, isn't there a fundamental difference in how this debate has played out in the United States and here? And that's why I would like to draw a distinction between um, somebody like Hitchens and somebody like Dawkins, because Dawkins appear more politically ignorant, whereas Hitchens appears to have an agenda. And similarly, there are people like Sam Harris, who in his book, for example, he argues at one point that in the interest of progress, if we have to consider uh, a nuclear first strike on the Middle East, so he says that it's a worthwhile price for progress. And similarly, he uh, draws on Alan Dershowitz to uh, defend torture in his book. So I think that um, subtext appears to be more political. And one recent bestseller around here has been uh, Christopher Cal Caldwell's book, who claims that Europe is about to be uh, conquered by uh, its increasing Muslim population. Mm -hmm. And one of the arguments he makes in his book is that uh, the only counter to that is a similar form of um, fanatical belief. And that's why he says that there's an, the West has an interest in reviving Christianity because it's anti-Muslim. Um, he, according to him, he says that that is the only thing which will steal um, the spines of Europe against uh, Islam at this point. Mm. So various neoconservatives are mm. Uh, mm. using this argument. Mm. So do you think that there's a difference between the two? Yes, I, I do, although I wouldn't, I wouldn't overrate it too much. Um, and there are lots of ironies there too. I mean, for example, um, yes, one of the things wrong with Dawkins is he's not, he doesn't really, well, like most English middle-class liberals, uh, he doesn't really uh, feel politics in his bones. There's no reason why he should in a way, and he doesn't really latch on to that kind of discourse at all. Whereas, of course, Hitchens, as a partly renegade Marxist, certainly does, and you're right. On the other hand, Dawkins opposed the war in Iraq. And, and of course, Hitchens not only didn't oppose it, but is very pally with many of its architects. So I think it's a, it's a, it's a, com it's a complex situation, you know, as far as the politics of it go. But what I was trying to argue was there is indeed a political subtext to the so-called God debate, which I think hasn't always been realised. Well, final question here, then, please. Zenon uh, Bankowski from, from Law. Sorry, I hate to introduce Marx back into it, but um, when you were talking about um, the progress of rationality and progress of Corpy, how do you stand in respect of Marx, who was in some respects clearly a Victorian rationalist? <laughs> In some respects, he was. Um, and well, I um, it, I mean, and I've just written another extraordinarily attractive book, um, um, which actually takes ten of the most standard uh, intelligent objections to Marx, including that one, yeah, and lots of others. You know, Marxism is a form of terrorism or tyranny or authoritarian, and tries to refute each one, one by one. Um, Sometimes Marx talks in a good old Victorian progressivist way. Yes, that's absolutely true. And sometimes he doesn't. There are different Marxes there. I think actually one of the most interesting thing, one of the strengths of Marx is that he combines a certain kind of Enlightenment rationalism with a certain kind of romantic humanism. He's, he has a passion for the sensuously particular, which he calls, among other things, use value but lots of other things. And yet he insists upon, quite properly in my view, upon a certain universalism, which is part of, a, of, a, of an Enlightenment belief, yes. In other words, Enlightenment rationalist is not, in my view, 
is a phrase to be unpacked and not simply used pejoratively. When uh, Enlightenment rationalists appealed to universality uh, and the utterly abstract equality of all human beings, which makes any good postmodernist these days wince, when they did so, the ancien regimes trembled. Yes, but what I meant was the eschatology, the eschatology of well, some people, I mean, there's great debate, as you would know, among Marxist scholars over whether Marx is eschatological. Um, uh, Marx began his whole career in contention with utopianism. Marx's work took off the ground in a ferocious argument with, as it were, certain eschatological versions of socialism that he deeply disagreed with. Um, Marx, for one thing, notoriously refused to predict the future, you know, and, and anti-Marxists attack him for that too, yes? So it's a, very, it's a very complex argument, but I think that I would say at his best, Marx, and this is another reason to be a Marxist apart from just annoying people, Marx combines the best of the romantic humanist tradition, which otherwise is in danger of lapsing into a certain kind of myopic particularism, with the best of the Enlightenment rationalist tradition. Sorry. So it's a, a great pleasure to propose a vote of thanks. Um, we are used in the Gifford lectures to have very famous people um, deliver brilliant lectures. Uh, but even in that context, I have to say tonight we had uh, an outstanding, um, I'll use the word performance, an outstanding performance uh, from Professor Eagleton. Um, he addressed very important topics. He did it with great erudition. Also, um, I think the, it's the most amusing Gifford lecture I've ever heard. And I think the ability to introduce these apparently irreverent light touches are very, very helpful, particularly for, a, a, as it were, a boring old scientist rather than a humanities person like myself. It gave, gave me some very, very good mental hooks. I, I appreciated the, the amusing touches. But... Uh, most importantly, he, he challenged, I think, the great majority of us in with, with respect to the integrity of the, the views of the world we, we would, would hold on these things. And I think the importance of the lecture plus the challenges we were given uh, really deserve great appreciation. So please join me. <laughs>